Namaste and good evening to all of you, including those of you who are not in the retreat. I wanted to offer the opportunity to everybody because it was the day of satsang. And uh, at the same time, I wanted to do this presentation for the people in the retreat. Um, I'm going to do a satsang, do a presentation about the guru and disciple relationship. It's a subject which is um, seldom approached in our school in terms of um, lectures and others. Um, it's a bit of a overlooking the subject. It's also because of the fact that uh, I, in particular, I am a bit of a private person. And this issue with guru-disciple uh, is putting me in the limelight in some way. And I uh, generally avoid that. I prefer to withdraw from that subject. But uh, then it appeared that some people had severe misunderstandings about what this relationship is uh, and uh, what the, how the things are supposed to be. Even this year there have been in the school some events where people were um, disturbed, not understanding correctly. So I thought it is a, a good time, taking advantage of this retreat, of this period of my life, to um, clarify some things both according to the yogic tradition and also according to our local situation here in Agama. That's why this story with Guru-Disciple is it's having its ups and downs in many ways, especially because in the West the word Guru has acquired a pejorative uh, meaning, and because some people, either because their arrogance is too big or because they have been subjected to negative experiences or they heard about other people's negative experiences, then they had um, um, problems with this. And um, although this guru-disciple relationship is traditional and embedded in the yoga of India and Tibet, so one cannot almost avoid it. That's the basic fundamental relationship by which the teaching of yoga has been happening for thousands of years. Um, nevertheless, the subject in itself uh, needs clarification. I will start by telling you a few scholarly things, a few dictionary, definitory things about um, the guru-disciple things. And then we are going to see the yogic aspects there. The very word guru is sometimes uh, defined etymologically as coming from the syllables gu and ru. And the fundamental yogic text like the Advaya Taraka Upanishad says, explains the word guru by saying the syllable gu means darkness, and the civil ru, he who dispels them. Because of the power to dispel darkness, the guru is thus named. So the guru is the dispeller of darkness. And uh, it's a definite thing stated in scholarly, if you go and look for the word guru in Wikipedia or places like this, you'll find statements like those which say, that the ultimate liberation, the supreme spiritual goal, the contentment, the freedom in the form of moksha and inner perfection is considered achievable in the Hindu beliefs by two means. Either by the help of a guru, 
or with evolution through the process of karma, including rebirth in some schools. So either like Buddha, you wait until you lived all your lives and then you reach, like Buddha without an explicit guru, or the guru is necessary to shorten that time to help you take a shortcut. At an individual level in India, the guru is many things, including being a teacher of skills, like somebody that teaches you mathematics, carpentry, dance, music, is also a guru. A counselor, one who helps in the birth of mind and realization of one's soul, one who instills values and experiential knowledge, an inspiration, and one who helps to guide a student's spiritual development. There is the yoga guru, which is about yoga and enlightenment, but then there are many, many other types of gurus. Uh, the funny thing is that in India, a guru is respected anyway a lot because they have this theory that if you don't have a guru and go in the jungle and live with the wolves, you become a wolf. So any teacher, starting from your mother who teaches you how to tie your shoelaces or something, and the school that teaches you how to read and write and all those, they actually separate you from being a wolf or a monkey. They make you into a human being. This is knowledge that is sometimes difficult to acquire. Like it's more easy to pick your nose and to look through the window at the birds that fly than to sit and to learn writing and doing mathematics. But when you make that unanthropic effort, then you kind of stand up and get out of the animality. It's one of the things that builds character and builds spirit. And that's why in India and in Tibet and often in Asia, anybody who gives you knowledge that separates you from animals is a guru, is a bringer of light, is a dispeller of darkness. Even if that darkness is about reading and writing. If you are illiterate and you cannot read and write, you are on a lower existential condition than somebody who can read and write. That's why reading and writing is an asset. It's an additional thing for you so that you can read the Bhagavad Gita, so you can study, so you can write your things down and so on and so forth. So the word guru in India has a bigger meaning. There's a whole theory on the internet about seven types of gurus, gurus that are teaching social skills, gurus that are teaching crafts and other things. And uh, going all the way to the Parama Gurus, the Gurus of spiritual nature, which are giving to the human being spirituality. Of course, in yoga we are dealing mostly with this kind of thing, but sometimes I teach people chiropractice. Chiropractice is not necessarily a science of enlightenment, but it has helped many people and it does good to a lot of people in a very efficient and short time. So even learning chiropractice, you learn it from somebody, and uh, in this way, uh, many things can be taught. And even in Agama, we teach many things which are not necessarily elements of liberation, like uh, health, healing, and others. The famous Indian teacher, Adi Shankaracharya, the founder of modern Vedanta, one of the greatest spirits of the last 2,000 years in India, says the following words. The teacher is one who is endowed with the power of furnishing arguments pro and con, of understanding questions of the student and answering them. The teacher possesses tranquility, self-control, compassion, and a desire to help others. 
who is versed in the sacred texts and unattached to the pleasures here and hereafter, knows the subject and is established in that knowledge. The teacher's sole aim is to help others and he has a desire to impart the knowledge. And Kularnava Tantra, a more radical text, a tantric text, who is uh, more wild than Adi Shankaracharya, who has a pretty uh, moderate discourse. Kularnava Tantra, when talking about the spiritual teacher, the guru says, Gurus are as numerous as lamps in every house, but, O oh goddess, difficult to find is a guru who lights up everything like the sun. Gurus who are proficient in the Vedas and so on, are numerous, but O Goddess, difficult to find is a Guru who is proficient in the Supreme Truth. Gurus who rob their disciples of their wealth are numerous, but O Goddess, difficult is to find a Guru who removes the disciples' ignorance. Numerous here on earth are those who are intent on social class, stage of life and family, but he who is devoid of all concerns is a Guru difficult to find. An intelligent man should choose a guru by whom supreme bliss is attained, and only such a guru and none other. Also in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, the guru is a valued and honored mentor, worthy of great respect and is a source of inspiration on the path to enlightenment. However, the teacher is not generally considered to be a divine figure, but rather a spiritual friend. Because in the Theravada Buddhism, sometimes the guru, the teacher is like simply a more advanced practitioner, is an elder, and he is not necessarily enlightened. Everybody learns from an elder, and then that elder is considered a spiritual friend. This is a very important division, because in the world today, when many masters like the Dalai Lama or Alan Watts in Buddhism or others, when they spoke about the Guru institution, they have said sometimes the Guru is a paternal figure, like his father and mother to the disciples, and sometimes the guru is like an older brother or simply a spiritual friend. And how do people integrate themselves with their guru? It's entirely their choice how they can connect. In the Tibetan tradition, which is another form of Buddhism, however, here it's more strict, the Tibetans are more fanatic, they are more connected in this way, the guru is seen as the Buddha the very root of spiritual realization and the basis of the path. Without the teacher, it is asserted, there can be no efficient experience or insight. Milarepa stole a mantra from a brother disciple, a more advanced disciple, by telling him that he had the permission of Marpa. He falsified the paper with a view to that. And he got the initiation, and then he didn't get results from that practice, even after a few weeks of practice. And then the disciple, the, the one who taught him, he said, something is wrong here, and most probably you cheated me, and you don't have the permission of Guru Marpa. Because if you would have done three weeks of this practice with the blessing of Guru Marpa, we would have seen this and this result. Like for them, it was very clear the blessing of the Guru, which seems to be a formality, it will make a huge difference if a technique is working for you or not, or if it's working big time or very, very feeble. Thus, uh, for them, it's, an exp- it's not just a belief. It's something very experimental. They see it working or not working. 
In Tibetan texts, great emphasis is placed upon praising the virtues of a guru, blessed by the guru whom the disciple regards as a bodhisattva or the embodiment of Buddha, the disciple can continue on the way of experiencing the true nature of reality. The disciple shows great appreciation and devotion for the guru, whose blessing is the last of the four foundations of the Vajrayana Buddhism. Like there are four foundations, and the blessing of the guru is one of them. Without it, there is no Vajrayana Buddhism or Lamaistic Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. The necessity for a guru is seen even in mundane crafts. If you want to learn painting or if you want to learn playing music, you always learn it from a teacher. Very, 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 very seldom we hear about a person in a hundred years who is a self-made person and they learn painting. Even when you learn it from a book or from a video, there is a cryptic guru involved there because somebody wrote that book and somebody made that video and put their practical knowledge in there. So today, the means of transmission of the information have become more sophisticated because of the technological civilization where we live. But the guru is present somewhere. Even when you learn a foreign language on a television broadcast, somebody has created that program, and therefore there is a guru of that foreign language there. It's also because... um, there is always an initiation and transmission. In every craft, in any method, there are the secrets of the craft. Many people are trying to learn acupuncture, and the people have gone deeper in acupuncture, they know a simple painful secret. The big acupuncturers of China, they don't teach in the West all the big secrets of acupuncture. You go to Beijing, they can put five, six needles in you and put you in total body anesthesia and they can perform whole body surgery on you with anesthesia just with acupuncture. And there are big ones who can do that and know how to do that. And when you go in France, you don't find acupuncturers generally who do that. And those who do that, they go and study nine years in Beijing with the big ones. And usually if you are Farang, they don't tell you when anyway because it's a secret which is kept only for the Chinese disciples. Even the acupuncture professors, they have disciples, and they have favorite disciples, and there are many initiations and transmissions which are not given as easily as that. And without the guru, of course, we have the parable, which um, is about the blind leading the blind. When people try to be gurus without knowing what they are doing and having been then, It's like the blind leading the blind. One of my friends was comparing gurus with a mountain guide. And he said, if you take as a mountain guide somebody who never climbed that mountain, what's the chance that they are not going to lose the way on the mountain together with you? And just because they pretend that they are mountaineers and they know the mountain. The point is that many people, Ramana Maharishi and others, they speak about uh, the inner guru. The inner guru is... uh, very clearly mentioned in the Tibetan and Indian texts, even under the name of Guru Tattva, like a Tattva, like an element, it is related with Ajna Chakra, although metaphorically people say there is the Guru in your heart. It's not in the heart chakra, in your heart like in your intimate being, but in yoga, both Indian and Tibetan, the Guru Tattva belongs to Ajna Chakra. So there exists an inner Guru, but... As great teachers have told us, like Swami Satyananda made a whole speech about this, we cannot actually hear the inner guru. Everybody has an inner guru and everybody can say, I'm going to listen to my inner guru. How are you going to listen to somebody whom you can't hear? 
It is a lie and a deceit to say that you can hear the inner guru. Because it's all a metaphorical thing and people say, uh, I had a sort of a feeling. Sort of a feeling is not the voice of the inner guru. We, everybody requires a clear communication. This clear communication, if it is reached, then we can talk about being in contact with the inner guru. But they asked Ramana Maharishi, if you advise to everybody the inner guru, then when will people perceive it? And he said, it takes years and years of practice and so on before you can reach there. And thus, uh, in the New Age culture, people, because they heard many scandals about the gurus and people, because they have a lot of egoism and they don't like to surrender to anybody, they started finding this outlet, this exit, like, oh, I go for the inner guru. The truth as presented by the great gurus of India is that the guru, the inner guru exists, but nobody, 99.99% of the seekers, they don't hear it. They don't have a clear communication with it. They use it like a metaphor, like they think it's just some vague uh, feeling. It's not a vague feeling. It has to be a crystal clear communication, like a radio telegraph communication, or if not, it's not a communication, and your inner guru cannot give you any clear advice. And that is why, as Vivekananda said, the great Vivekananda of India, the soul can receive only the impulse of another soul. Even if you read the words of Jesus and you get moved, you are getting an impulse from Jesus, as you learn in the lecture about Svadhyaya, that by Svadhyaya, one gets in telepathical contact with the great soul that wrote that text. So it's not the text that moves you, it's the great soul that moves you, that gets in telepathic contact with you. And that's why uh, Vivekananda said, don't think that letters and books and things can by themselves move you. It is only the soul that receives the impulse of the soul. He himself received a powerful impulse from Ramakrishna, whom he contested for a long time and considered half crazy and all that. And still the soul impulse from Ramakrishna was very strong. The same text, Kularnavatantra, shows very clearly well the fallacy of looking upon the guru as just a human being is. Kularnavatantra says, if Shiva himself is not the guru, then who can be the one that gives bliss and liberation? This obviously shows that the guru is not guru by themselves. The guru is guru because it transmits an influence of the divine, and the power is not in the Guru. The Guru is a link in this story. And therefore, this being said, we usually, all the yogis agree with this, that we need to choose an outer Guru whom we can see and hear through which we ask for grace. Because the inner Guru, although it exists, we don't see it, we don't hear it, and thus it becomes just a theory that... So the external guru is necessary and uh, that simply means it depends very much of our attitude. There is a famous Kagyu. Kagyu are the redhead lamas of Tibet. It's one of the branches of Tibetan Buddhism. And the Kagyu school, they have a famous quote about the guru which is quoted in many anecdotal Tibetan books. And it says as simple as that, like the Kagyus being Buddhist, having a little bit of this Buddhist rationalistic thing, they simply go 
and simplify things. They have that legend with a tooth of Milarepa, which some of you have heard in our lectures. And they say the following dictum, which you should always remember if you want to dwell in spirituality. It says, if you see your guru as a fully liberated being, you will receive the blessing of a Jivan Mukta or a fully liberated being. If you consider your guru as simply enlightened, like having had some spiritual experience, then you will receive the blessing coming from an enlightened being. If you consider your guru a Siddha, or a person endowed with some paranormal abilities, such as hypnotic, telepathic, whatever, then you will receive a blessing which comes from a Siddha. If you consider your guru just your spiritual friend, then you will receive a tiny blessing coming from a spiritual friend. And if there is no love and surrender to your guru, then there will be no blessing. Therefore, the Tibetan statement says very clearly that the guru is a mirror of ourselves. We decide what the guru is for us from the standpoint of grace. Grace comes, but we have to ask for the higher level of grace or for the lower levels of grace. We decide what it is through our attitude. That's why Swami Satyananda says it very clearly. If you want a good guru, you should be ready to become a good disciple. There was a statement made by the Theosophical Society which said the same. Good disciples deserve good gurus and bad disciples deserve bad gurus. It's just a mirroring of what you are putting in it. The Shiva Sutra, a great text of Kashmiri Shaivism, says when the Shaivistic guru is seen in this way, then the gestures of his daily life become mudras, like spiritual gestures. The words are mantras, and the sleep of such a guru is nidra, is like the sleep of Vishnu. It becomes conscious sleep. Here is a little quote from Shiva Samhita, another famous text of Kundalini and Hatha Yoga, which in the chapter 3 says, among others, the following. In shloka number 10. Now I shall tell you how easily to attain success in yoga by knowing which the yogis never fail in the practice of yoga. 11. Only the knowledge imparted by a guru is powerful and useful. Otherwise it becomes fruitless, weak and very painful. Like you can choose a yoga technique, practice it and get 20 years later in some painful place where you need surgery because you did Nauli learned from a book written by some Tom, Dick and Harry. 12. He who attains knowledge by pleasing his guru with every attention readily obtains success therein. 13. There is not the least doubt that the guru is father, guru is mother, and guru is God even. And as such, he should be served by all with their thought, word, and deed. By guru's favor, with every felicity or good relating to the soul is obtained. So the guru ought to be daily served, else there can be nothing auspicious. Aurobindo, commenting on this issue, says, therefore, that the personality of the guru is not very important, because you are not really connecting with a guru like a chum in a beer hall where you are spending time together. Your guru is a link, a visible link for you to ask for grace. And therefore, it's only a symbol. So he says the personality of the guru is not very important within some reasonable limits. 
Like, of course, if the guru does absolutely preposterous things, then it's very difficult to preserve that kind of faith. And that's why, of course, most gurus, at least not some of the tantric gurus who wanted to be scandalous at all costs, the Gurdjieff, Osho, and other types of such teachers, then they, of course, they try to stay within some reasonable limits. Like the guru, even Ramakrishna, when he is described in the private life, they say that one day somebody almost pushed him into suicidal thoughts. Ramakrishna, are you kidding me? They say that uh, Ramakrishna was sometimes smoking tobacco, and that's what partly what caused his throat cancer, that Sri Aurobindo was drinking alcohol, that Swami Shivananda was diabetic and still eating a lot of sugar. And then you can ask yourself, like, you know, these are human beings after all. Everybody is a human being. Maybe Jesus was perfect being uh, an avatar. But every guru, if you take them like this, then you see a lot of issues with them if you relate on a personal level. But of course, people were not really disqualifying Shivananda because Shivananda was obese. And on top of it, he was eating some sweets from time to time. Like people could shrug their shoulders and say Shivananda can still guide us. He is a human being, he's having his things to sort out, maybe he's taking too much negative karma from us, his pupils, and this fucks with his mind in some way or another, or with his body, but nevertheless, we can use Shivananda as a channel for grace and learning. So that's why Aurobindo says the personality of the Guru is not very important if it's within some limits. I've seen people crossing those limits. And he just needs to have the knowledge and realization and then what matters is the faith of the disciple, like the Tibetan thing. If you think your disciple is liberated, you are asking for the advice and blessing of a liberated person. Vivekananda agrees with this, and he says the Guru must truly know the spirit of the sacred scriptures, like the spirit of the scriptures. What does Geranda Samhita want to say? What's the spirit of it? Of course, we are having in this respect some extreme gurus that have pushed this relationship into elements which are extreme. Most gurus are not planning to go there. Some people are extreme. We know that even here in the school there are people who have a lot of fire, practice extreme sports, and on Sunday when everybody is resting, they go skydiving or kite surfing or climbing the Kaurā hill or something like this. And it's obvious that if those people will one day become gurus, they are going to be gurus with chilies up their asses. That fire is not going to calm down. And they are just going to be a bit extreme. And being extreme, I never took my viras in the vira groups and said, come on, let's see who's got the balls, who wants to come on Kaurā with me on Sunday. Because I would hate to sweat up on the road to Kaurā. No? So I myself don't take people there. But other gurus, if they would be instead of me, they could be making a boot camp out of Kopangan, out of Agama, and kind of push, 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 push. And there are many people who say, but Swami, why don't you push? We'd love you to push a little bit more. That's why it's a matter very much of temperament and personality, and different gurus are in different ways. Perhaps the most extreme example given in Indo-Tibetan yoga is the example of the famous couple of guru and disciple, Tilopa and Naropa, the starters of the Tibetan Kargyutpa lineage. 
they are Tilopa, Naropa, Marpa, Milarepa, Gampopa, and then the Karyutpa school is starting from those five. And the first two in this line, first one was really nuts, was really mad. Tilopa is a wild guru, a mendicant, a wandering mendicant, initiated by a Dakini, who gained his knowledge by subjectively raping that Dakini, so obtaining the knowledge in forceful ways. And then Tilopa was an absolutely insane guru when it came to the lovely Naropa, who was an obedient man with a lot of aspiration and who would have given his life to get the knowledge from Tilopa. And Tilopa, he witnessed Tilopa eating fish and throwing it in the air and making it materialize again. And he got convinced that this Tilopa was the real thing. And then he asked to be disciple. And Tilopa treated him like shit for about 12 years. Didn't teach him anything. He said, if you want to stay with me, stay. Ignored him. Like every evening, he treated him like a rock on the road. And then from time to time, addressed to him all sorts of insane things. Like asking him to skin a cow, which was uh, the work of the lower castes. And it was inconceivable for a yogi looking for a Brahminic knowledge to go and skin a cow, uh, which was a forbidden uh, job. And he asked his disciple, he, put some, he asked him to stay quiet and not to move, and he put some thorns under his nails and let him agonize in a tent for 48 hours. Eventually he did a hideous one where he asked him to kidnap a bride from a bridal cortege because he said he wanted to have sex with her. And Naropa was so devoted that he went to get the bride. And of course the cortege, they caught him and they beat him almost to death. And Tilopa didn't even wait for him. That evening he went first, and this guy lied down in blood for a month, he recovered, and then he started looking for Tilopa. Like his guru seemed not to care about him at all. And after he went through all this ego crushing, then one night as they were sitting by the fire, Tilopa unexpectedly took out his wooden shoe and knocked him on the forehead, pop, like this. And as he did that, Naropa entered in Samadhi, and he became the continuator of the lineage. Like this is a very unorthodox guru. It's a cruel, crazy guru who subjects the disciple. He still has a pedagogic thing in his mind. Not all the gurus are like this. Neither Aurobindo, nor Satyananda, or Yogananda, or Shivananda, or Mananda Mai, or Ramana Maharishi, or you name it. None of them did even close things like this. Because they were not having this temperament. It's obvious that Tilopa was a compulsive, obsessive, on the brink of madness type of person. And he reached spiritual power and awakening. And he also was an extreme weirdo. And then, woe to his disciples. You know, like his disciples would have to go through fire to please such an insane teacher. Otherwise, very powerful and very uh, spiritual, but in personality... The temperament, very hard to fulfill. Swami Satya Sangananda, an Indian yogini, a female uh, Swamini, says, just because some people have been unfortunate to experience positive guru relationship, like some people didn't have a good guru relationship, this is no justification for them to have an absolute rejection. And she notices a very interesting thing, which is the absolute truth there. She's like, many people say, oh, I heard about this guru, I had this experience with this guru, it won't work, now I will not listen to anybody, I'll follow my inner guru, which you can't hear anyway, but you say you are following the inner guru. And she adds by saying, many such people strangely 
seek to acquire the status of guruhood themselves. Like nobody wants to be a disciple, but everybody wants to be a guru because the ego feels much better in that position than surrendering and uh, crushing your ego a little bit. Like wherever your ego is too attached to this, to that, the guru will give you a bit of a thing and then it's like, Nana, I'm suffering, I just want to be my own person. Therefore, remember, and Satya Sangananda says this, to be a guru, one must be first a good disciple. If you have been a good disciple for 12 years serving a guru, then you definitely will know how to be a guru as your spirituality develops. If you always skipped that stage, I've seen such kind of people who never had a guru, but now they were gurus. And uh, they were the difficult type, to say the least. Therefore, the guru, as the experts say, Dalai Lama keeps a speech about that, they are not chosen on the basis of their behavior and personality. If the guru is, for example, rude and abrupt, then you feel reproached. And, of course, the tendency is to reject him or her. But you actually do seek a guru to outgrow your limitations. So it's normal that a guru can be painful to your life. And that's, the guru is not Dr. Feelgood. The function of the gurus is not to make you feel wonderfully. That's not at all the function. On the contrary, sometimes... Uh, quite the opposite. In India, of course, it's a known thing that almost everyone has a family guru, even when the family guru is not a Swami Shivananda or something. And Swami Satya Sangananda says it very beautifully. I quote it from her here. She says, Every human being needs someone to whom he can turn in times of sorrow and joy. Someone who is always there, firmly stationed, like the rock of Gibraltar. Someone who will not make any selfish demands. Someone who thinks only how to give and never thinks of taking. Someone who will pick you up when everyone else has dropped you. Someone with whom you can cry like a child and not be misunderstood. Someone who has the wisdom and grace to help you overcome your afflictions so that you may again stand on your feet. In the Guru, you can discover all these qualities and sometimes many more. Of course... All these conclusions, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, they go to say that that's why one must never criticize their guru, who is the vessel of your own grace. Like whatever limitations the guru has a personality, you're not coming for that, because you don't try to make family friends with the guru. You're asking for teaching and grace. And Tibetans say criticizing the guru is like spitting on the plate from which you eat. Like nobody spits in the place from where they take food. And that's why if the faith is lost, you have to work on it to get it back, or else it is better to find another guru. Maybe the same experience will occur there. There are people who have tried ten gurus in their life, and all of them displeased them, which actually tends to show a problem with the person who is seeking, not with the gurus. When it happens more than once or twice, it starts becoming a pattern, and it starts showing something else. In India, Swami Satyananda this defines uh, different types of guru, just for you to have, be a little bit in the environment. The yogi guru, who is more than a yoga teacher, the yogi guru is the one that teaches the teachers how to teach yoga, the teacher of the teachers. Uh, the jnani guru, the knowledge, the guru of knowledge, metaphysics, 
who is generally very rational and has a lot of wisdom. And uh, jnana is a strong thing in agama as well as yoga. We have here both teaching of yoga and teaching of jnana and metaphysics. The tantric guru, which even Swami Satyananda admits is very rare, because tantra even in India has become such a rare thing and very few people go there, right? In, uh, it's the eternal blame which is given on tantric schools and this, that why do... Like you expect yoga gurus to do asanas with their pupils, but you don't expect tantric gurus to do tantra with their pupils. That how is the transmission going to be done? How is the teaching going to be? You expect martial artists to spar with their pupils, to teach them kung fu, but you can't, as a tantric guru, you can't make love with those that you teach. Then how is the transmission? We are just doing parroting and theory, just empty speech. It's not all these things, yoga, martial arts, tantra, and so on. They are practical, and they have to be taught as practical things. They have to be channels of teaching things practically. Then there is the Brahmanishta guru, the spontaneous Jivan Muktas, like Ramana Maharishi. People who don't know yoga, don't have too much metaphysical knowledge, they are not tantric maybe, but because they are enlightened spontaneously, they can be gurus through a sort of a direct transmission, like Take the enlightenment if you can. And uh, Swami Satyananda especially praises and mentions the female gurus that have a very special place in India. They are very rare, but they are very praised because the females have this inherent intuitive and psychic nature and sometimes they can be very efficient gurus. As you know, even in Agama, we have one female guru for the time being and some people felt great inspiration and help in uh, soliciting the help of a female guru who sees the things in an intuitive and psychic way. As about the disciples, I'm going to have to say some more, but because I picked up this thing from Satyananda, Satyananda wants to describe the disciples and uh, therefore, when you go with a guru or in spirituality, you can choose to integrate yourself in various ways. The first thing which Satyananda des describes is the karma sannyasin. He even wrote a whole book called Karma Sannyasa, which is the householder, karma yogi, who supports the work of the guru in the material world. He gives to the guru money, land, things, the guru dakshina, as it's called in India, and that's exactly like some people do in the Christian church where they work for the Catholic church or something like the um, Opus Dei and others helping with a sort of seva. They do seva also in Thailand and they give money to the temple to build new things and so on. Um, Satyananda says there are people who have a wife, have kids, have a job and a career. They can't do so much practice, sadhana. So they do a bit of sadhana, whatever they can. And then they try to say, since we are people in the world, at least we can contribute with this or that. So that's karma, sannyasi, in which a large part of your discipleship is based on karma yoga. The sadhaka, disciple, a more strict relationship, like here, the, sani, the karma sannyasi, maybe the guru sees them once a year when they come to visit the ashram. But the sadhaka, disciple, has a much more strict relationship because sadhana is the basic, the spiritual practice. And here, the guru has to look into the spiritual practice and the disciple is asking about the spiritual practice when there are problems. 
And uh, Satyananda then says, it's better if there is no interference from other sources. Like usually when you want to become somebody's sadhaka disciple, you don't mix two types of yoga, two advices from two different teachers. If you want to be somebody's sadhaka disciple for three years, you do 100% what that teacher tells you with no outside interference because the teacher then is in charge and responsible of what's happening there. So he says you have to unlearn everything for that period of time. Do not try to even assess your progress because the pupil cannot see how far he has gone along the path. And this is a path which, re- which requires that the pupil who wants to be a sadhaka disciple has to have loyalty and humility. But it's a more close relationship. The sannyasin disciple is the disciple who is doing renunciation, renounces the world and takes monastic vows. vows. And this, sometimes the sannyasis, the extreme disciples, they have to have devotion and faith like the householder. They have to have strict discipline like that of the sadhaka. And they have to have a lot of surrender of the ego. Because these are the people who want to kind of renounce everything and become monastic. And then the guru has to deal with their ego sometimes. The ego, that ego needs sometimes a bit of treatment. There is also, as he calls, the tantric disciple, which given the rarity of the tantric gurus is so rare. And the tantric disciple he defines as a more, as a very intense and total relationship, but he defines it as playful. He says the tantric disciple connects with the guru sometimes like father and child, sometimes like friend and brother, sometimes like God and devotee, sometimes like two children playing together in a garden, sometimes like husband and wife. Like the tantric relationship, of course, because it brings the practice of the left-hand tantra into the game, it is a, a very playful and it is a very elaborate relationship. And finally, Satyananda humoristically and ironically mentions, as expected, the white category which he calls the humbug disciple, which means those who are superficial and who resist till the first trial, who are there to cater their own ego, and or they can become simply psychophants, like bad, bad advisors. There are people who can spend even 10 years in a school, not be real disciples. They become psychophants, they start following their interest, they start telling you, no, I'm in the 15 year of yoga with Swami Vivekananda, look at me how great I am, I have an important word to say around here in Agama, and so on, but that's, according to Satyananda, that's the humbug disciple, which is um, a failure. Therefore, it is obvious to say that the guru is spiritual father-mother or spiritual brother-friend, depending on the implication. Some people like to connect with their guru, and again, it's the choice of the disciple. But the disciple can integrate himself like this or like that. For example, Ramakrishna treated his female guru and his male guru as his mother and as his father. That, that was his idea. He felt good to refer to them as to a father or a mother. Swami Shivananda treated his guru more like an older brother, like a friend on the path, and that's why different people can have different attitudes. And remember, it does not depend on the guru. It depends on what the disciple, once accepted as a disciple, decides to do. 
Therefore, and remember that it's been said, and I said it before, that there are two ways of reaching emancipation, liberation, and one way is the grace of the Guru. That's why there is even a mantra in India which says the grace of the Guru can liberate a disciple. That's something which is well known, but as the teachers of India tell us, one must approach the Guru with sincerity and dedication, expecting nothing, and receiving whatever one gets with humility, and always striving to maintain unity. It is the same as one approaches grace. We do meditation with grace every final ceremony. When you call for grace, you don't have any expectation, and you receive whatever is given to you on that Saturday evening, because you are dealing with grace. When you are dealing with Guru, you are still dealing with grace. Because from Guru, you are asking grace. Guru is, the Guru is not giving something from himself or from herself. He's giving you grace. And that's why it's important, because when people deal with somebody personally, people have expectations, and very often they don't have humility or modesty. But if you think well what the function of the Guru is, then one has to, whatever one gets, one should get it with humility and always striving to maintain unity. Since the Guru is the vehicle of grace and the disciple asks for grace, not for come with me, let's eat some sausages in the next restaurant. No, You're not asking for a, an attached implication. You are asking for grace. The Tibetan proverb even has a, the, the Tibetans even have a proverb in this respect, which says guru, the Guru is like the fire. If you come too close to the Guru, you melt because you start interacting with the personality. If you stay away, you feel cold. So you have to find an exact implication, involvement with this. Swami Satya Sangananda says again, the Guru is what you see in him. Your perception determines your experience with your Guru. If you perceive him as unlimited, infinite and a never-ending experience, he is that for you. If you perceive him as an ordinary man, you will always fail to realize the divinity in him. That does not mean he is not a divine being. You can't see it, that's all. To a blind man, the sun is always inexistent. Doesn't mean the sun doesn't actually exist. The relationship with the Guru are, decide, are defined by Swami Shivananda in four forms, which Ramakrishna also mentioned. He says there is the Dasiya Bhava, which means the relationship connecting to the Guru as a servant connects to a master. There is the Vatsaliya Bhava, in which one connects like the relationship between a father and a son, a parent and a son. There is the Ishvara Bhava, which is the relationship between God and a devotee. So you can treat your Guru as master, as father, mother, as God. And then there is the Madhurya Bhava, which Ramakrishna experienced a lot with Kali, which is the attitude of being a friend or a lover, but friends and lovers that have attained unity, not friends and lovers that argue and quarrel. It's a unity, friendship, which is for life. I'm going to read a beautiful, beautiful quote from a dialogue between two Atonite monks, two monks from Mount Athos, one of them was the elder, and he was not a guru, but the closest to a guru, that you get to a guru in the Christian environment. 
he was what you called in Christianity, in Orthodox Christianity, a confessor, the elder, the confessor. The young man was making his confessions every day, every week, whatever, to this man. Like if he said, I'm having sexual um, thoughts and so on, that's what he confessed. He, the Christian confession, right? He made This man was his permanent confessor. And this is like an elder. And of course, the elder must have his own confessor, but it's not the younger man. It's somebody further up that line. And um, there is this young man who lives with this old man, and the old man is truly, truly sane, and then his time is coming to die, and the young man can see that he dies. And uh, the old man says uh, that Virgin Mary told him that he will go tomorrow, he will have to leave the body tomorrow, and he says, please, tonight, don't sleep, stay with me, because I want to bless you. And the old man, weak as he was and dying, he spent three hours with three hours with his hands on the head of the young man, giving him blessings and praying three hours for him non-stop. And then he speaks to him. And that speech I found absolutely amazing. It's coming from this Anahata, from this Christian Anahata. And it is so beautiful to see the relationship between them. You can imagine how these two people were together by the way of Madhurya Bhava. You know, what kind of friendship we are talking about. He talks to him saying goodbye, basically. And he said, my sweet Paisia, my son, we will love each other forever and ever. Our love is precious. You will bless from here, from the earth, and I will bless from heaven, since I hope that God will give me his ultimate grace. You serve down here, and I will come every year to visit you. I will be happy that you live in this house, in the hut, in the, but it will eventually be as God wishes. Like he's not forcing him. He said, it would be good if you live here. We will have a precious love forever and ever, and I will visit you every year. And his tears were flowing abundantly. This is the kind of, like, this is a guru disciple, which is based on a love, on a friendship, on, it's not based on any exploitation, on anything like this. It's the sincere desire of the old man to teach him everything he has, and to give to him everything he has, even dying, he's forcing his old arms to stay up for three hours agonizingly just to pray and pray and pray for him. And it is the sincere desire of the young one to absorb, to learn, to be given all the art of prayer and all the things. That's why uh, Ramakrishna and others say the disciple may choose that bhava, that you want to be master, servant, God, devotee, whatever, the disciple may choose the bhava that suits him or her as a tool to strengthen his link with the guru. You want to become friend or lover with your guru, become friend or lover with your guru. You want to serve, you want to be a son or a daughter, you want to be a devotee, whichever serves you, it's a matter of what fits with your temperament. That's why disciples, says um, Satyananda again, must always be aware that they have chosen to serve the Guru. Not because the Guru needs them, but because of their need to learn and grow, to evolve and to throw away the ties that bind them. There are many Gurus who consider that taking disciples is a pain in the neck. It's such a complication of your life when you could just live modestly and single, and then you don't need to care about anything. So there are many gurus who are very, very difficult in taking disciples, simply because they like their life 
to be happy and simple and not to be answerable to any obligation which this relationship involves. The guru-disciple relationship is not based on logic or on finite intellect, like I'm evaluating each other. It's a relationship based on higher awareness, because it comes from the awareness that there is a spiritual reality, this person has reached the spiritual reality, and I'm asking for it, I'm the next in line, I want to get enlightenment. It's a higher awareness. Normal people on the street, they don't think about the fact that they want to reach salvation or enlightenment. And thus they are not in such a relationship. You must have a higher awareness to first of all aspire after such a thing. To one who has lost this awareness, every act will seem futile. The intellect will shroud the mind with negative doubts. The wavering disciple will question the purpose of working so hard in the ashram for no money or for no reward. The mind will speculate about how the same work elsewhere will earn more money or status. Many similar thoughts will even make the life that previously had been rejected, like many people ran away from life to a guru, and then they think, but after all my previous life, and which was thought worthless before joining an ashram, now seems glamorous and not so bad after all. That's because falling out of grace, like not being in that relationship where I'm waiting for that grace. I can reach enlightenment if I reach the end of my natural evolution like Buddha, or I can reach enlightenment if a guru gives me a shortcut. It's as simple as that. And therefore... The sitting in the presence of a guru and not waiting for the end of time to come for you, then automatically is a higher awareness. You know why you are there, and the guru knows why you are there, and everybody knows what the nature of this relationship is. But then people forget. The disciple qualities often mentioned by the tantras are faith, devotion, courage, Deep thinking, discrimination, gratitude, ardor and perseverance, freedom from mean thoughts, thirst of knowledge, perseverance. That's what makes a disciple. A person that has this thirst of knowledge, perseverance, courage to take decisions and responsibility, discrimination, perseverance, ardor, all those things. So... In this way, we have gone through some of the main ideas which govern this story, and I hope you understand it better and better. We describe it sometimes when we describe the polarity of chakras, that it is the only relationship on Vishuddha chakra, which is called mother-baby and guru-disciple. Because like the mother who doesn't sleep and give food even from her own body and so on, and she has nothing to receive in exchange, there is a sort of illusory impression that you are getting love and thing from the little baby. But actually if the little baby is taken and given to another woman, in one week it adapts to the other woman and doesn't know of the first mother anymore. So actually the little baby is too small and too undeveloped to give love to the mother. It's the mother that projects and imagines that the little baby loves her so much. Because the little baby doesn't have a superstructure and a cortex, an evolved brain by which he can love. Love has not yet developed before the consciousness develops and there can be a conscious choice and so on. So exactly as a mother gives and gives and gives and this, this is how the guru wants to be, to give and give and give and give. And this relationship on Vishuddha is very pure and very difficult to attain. And that's why some people 
rise there, when they have aspiration in the beginning and then they lose it and then they start questioning and they start, uh, then every single act becomes like, oh, I wonder why is that and uh, that's a situation which is sad and which is not conducive to any benefit. Like a disciple who connects like this with a guru will not get anything from the guru because the guru can feel that the relationship is not right. Surely, you can still pay 4,000 baht and learn the Agnisara Dauti or something like this. The question is where, how you are connected. In Agama, we are a tantric school, so therefore the tantric guruship is happening. This school is based on yoga, therefore the yogi guru. It's based on jnana. We give so much knowledge. We're probably one of the schools in the world that gives the most clear, scientific, rational technical knowledge of kundalini, chakras, energy, yoga, different levels. So our metaphysical jnana is a lot. You can expect that from us. Uh, there is the tantric tradition, as I said, it's represented. And um, of course, because uh, of the public school-like structure, like we are an open school where people can pay even on internet and come to the first level intensive or join a workshop, so it's a little bit like a public school. It's like in the beginning, everybody has access to some of our teachings. Because of this mass structure in the beginning, in the beginning many pupils are confused. They don't know anything about the fact that they are in a school where they could have a guru or they, where they could go to enlightenment. Because they are confused. They don't even know what's left and what's right. And they learn the basic things. And therefore, they do not connect with the guru or with the gurus. They need time to search their hearts, to search their motivations. As growing through the levels, as going through the levels of the school, the pupils that make it there, because not everybody makes it through the levels, there is a pyramid-like structure, like fewer and fewer people are getting higher and higher, then uh, the pupils generally are getting closer like I start knowing them by name, by person, by the details in their life, and they start getting more loyal to the school. These are many of the pupils who start doing karma yoga, involving themselves, offering their karma sannyasa, offering their karma yoga and so on, and therefore they are closer to the school, to the guru or the gurus um, at this, uh, in, in this process. Of course, there comes, and that is, has not been taken care in a public relations way, like it's not a thing which is quantified because it's such a discrete level of the soul, that there comes a discrete, unadvertised stage as people go through the levels where people really start considering Agama as their alma mater, as it's said in Latin, like the school of their soul. There are people who have gone through some levels, fewer or more, and then they say, this is my alma mater, like this is my basic thing, this is what I want to be, teach, represent. And then such people can consider Swami or can consider Ananda Maha or their guru in this respect. Uh, it's Again, it's not mentioned, but uh, we say perhaps this uh, satsang will bring it more to the awareness of people, that people, pupils should seriously decide when that stage has arrived for them, if they are ready or they want to make that step, and to make steps to take it explicit. Because if they decide it in their heart, but they don't tell it to my face, 
then I might not know it. So people who reach at that level, they have to express their intention and it's a sort of a handshake. We don't really shake hands, but it's a, it is a sort of a relationship which is declared. That's why, um, just to make it clear, because um, some of the advanced pupils of the school who connected to me in these ways, but through their own intuition, through their own, like they somehow found their way, and now they consider themselves to be my disciples and me to be their guru. And we never really had a moment where they shook hands, but of course they let me understand what their intentions are. And uh, this is, of course, there are duties on both sides, because when somebody uh, assumes to be a disciple, then automatically I have different obligations as compared to people who now are coming, now are going. They just come two days at the first level intensive. I just see them as faces in the crowd and I do not have even their name or something. It's okay for a while that people learn yoga like this until they can wake up and find out what they want to do if they really want to continue. But continuing and continuing and continuing, people are expressing this, that, hey, I'm interested in this school, I'm interested in this line, I'm interested in taking the teachings and the spiritual protection of this person, and therefore it's going in that direction. That's why advanced pupils, they've said, you know, many people don't see you like this because they have never seen you in that way and never had a relationship with you in that way, and at least you have to make it clear to them. That's why I am making clear to you. I am open and available in being your guru, but I am not be the one to propose this relationship to you because it is not according to the tradition. It's not gurus who ask people to be their disciples, never ever. It happened a couple of times as great exceptions and for very particular reasons. So if you feel that this is your dharma and then this relationship of love and spiritual friendship or what it is and oneness, it can be started. And you have to decide when you make, to want to make that step forward and volunteer for it. It can still be that, of course, it's not automatically always going to work, but of course, first there needs to be a proposal of the kind. And of course, that stability and loyalty are required. These are not things to be taken lightly and so on, because... Uh, uh, there are duties on both sides. There are responsibilities which go more than one lifetime. Sometimes gurus take care of their disciples for lifetimes in a row. There is a consecration there. There is the participation of the universal consciousness in all this dance, in all this game. And that is why uh, people perhaps have not been told clearly because in the Agama educational system we have levels from one to a hundred or how many levels, I never counted them. And uh, uh, many people go through the levels, but automatically they are sometimes hitting the jackpot, like they somehow get into the right position. They instinctively, they place themselves in the right relationship. And I know them, and they know me, and... Um, I am aware of my obligations and we are doing these things. I had pupils who I have seen working yoga and doing honestly spiritual practice and addressing the relationship with me in very serious ways and 
10 years had passed since they were doing yoga and I could not see certain results because their practice of yoga was perhaps not intense enough. And then I interfered directly in their evolution, finding alternative solutions. And those people did experience states of samadhi and they have been going in there. They acknowledged it, they realized it and so on. They were happy about it. And in this way, this relationship is a very functional relationship, but one has to be very serious about it. And that's why, because things are not going uh, like a public school thing, uh, these things have a sort of a personal nature. As I said, I for one, I am a more the cryptical type of person. I don't like to make too many public demonstrations and things like that. And I tend to be a private person who, if I'm left to stay in my room, I stay in my room. I don't even come out of my house for days in a row. And because of this, um, some of these things have not been expressed because there is a gap between the institutional educational nature of Agama, where we present to you with videos, with courses, with the teaching, with exams, with sashes, with supervision, so that you can see part of your progress and at the same time there are these more personal things because yoga cannot be taught by a machine. Yoga is taught by human beings and ultimately those human beings are connected in a human way. There exist spiritual, pure, loving, lovely relationships which exist between people at that level and um, remember time and again it's not very much about the personality of you and I. It's very much about this. That the disciple is asking for grace. The disciple cannot hear his internal guru. And therefore the disciple chooses an external symbol. Not foolishly, not absurdly. In the Mahabharata there is a disciple who created a clay statue of his guru, Drona. And started doing training in front of the clay statue of his guru. <laughs> and still reached proficiency, perfection in the arts which he was studying, even with a clay statue, because he projected all his love and respect and this to just a clay statue, which was like the presence of the Guru. So it's very important for the disciple that when he looks for grace, he should stop being uh, arrogant, infatuated, and kind of say, no, I don't need anybody, I'm smart and big enough. Everybody in crafts, in sciences, in arts, and in yoga needs uh, usually a teacher. Few, very few in a century are the people who didn't have teachers. Even the great Ramakrishna, who was an avatara, he had two gurus. Even the great Abhinavagupta, who was considered to be an avatara of Shiva, describes, if I remember correctly, something like 18 gurus of his in his life. Shankaracharya, the great Shankaracharya, claims that he learned spirituality from 30 gurus, while when eventually he settled to the last one which brought him the knowledge. And that's why um, this guru-disciple relationship is actually a very beautiful relationship. It has been polluted often because many modern people, starting with the 1960s and so, they have taken it down into places of irresponsibility. Uh, many people thought it was just a silly joke 
and that they could treat it like a joke and so on. And uh, unfortunately, because of this, there are also stories <coughs> which are disappointing, discouraging. I myself have been part, I encountered people who deserved my veneration and respect from one end to the other. And uh, I encountered people who at some people, at some moment, they deserved, they seemed worshipful, and then at some other time, they were not worshipful at all. They were, on the contrary, they were terrible. And thus, I myself know how this story goes, and yet I would not give up my own feelings of discipleship. If I wouldn't have had 20 years where I have been a disciple, whatever year, years I count till whatever moment, if I wouldn't have had those years, I would have felt a very handicapped. I would have felt very that I lost some very, very important part in my life. That's why this relationship on both sides of it is a very precious relationship. And you have to think about either spiritual friendship or parental relationships or others, whatever fits your typology, whatever fits your um, consciousness. Remember that in India it's more easy because in India almost every family has a guru, at least the traditional families, and therefore it's a thing which is known that you are getting a blessing and you are getting some grace even in this way. There could be so much more to say. I've seen hundreds of pages written about the uh, the marvel, the mystery, the magic of this master-disciple relationship. And in, to a great extent, it is indispensable. In yoga, it is inevitable that you learn from somebody, that you have an elder, a confessor, a respected teacher. And of course, some of these teachers are more like mentors. They are like more advanced teachers. And sometimes with some people, you connect at the level of guru-disciple because of the need for grace. Grace is inevitable in the spiritual life, and sometimes you have to direct that grace towards the person that can provide it to you. That's a little bit of a glimpse for all of you in the school, which also helps you to clarify some things, because uh, I have not spoken clearly about these things. I did not include them in the yoga courses in the school, allowing this issue of um, teacher-pupil and guru-disciple to go to be between the lines like this. But being between the lines, uh, I left a part of the tradition of yoga unexplicitated, unspoken clearly about, and uh, I could see the consequences that some people misunderstood the nature of their relationship with the school, of their relationship with me or with other uh, advanced teachers or with the other guru of the school. And because of this, there resulted more confusion, more suffering. So I thought I would have this lecture even recorded so that people can see it, hear it, and in this way have a bit of a feeling about what can happen here in Agama. With this, I have finished for tonight. This is the satsang. And um, if you'll have questions, of course, when there are questions and answers sessions, we'll go for that. With this finishing the satsang, um, I'm just addressing the people from the retreat. 
Tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock we, consider, we continue with the last day of our retreat. And for all the, of you in the school, I'm saying that at 7 o'clock tomorrow evening, there is the last hour of meditation here in the retreat. And that's actually an open meditation for the whole school. Because tomorrow is the birthday of Muktananda and I. And uh, I know of other people have birthday in that day, but uh, we are acting here as uh, two of the known teachers' faces of the school, then uh, it is the habit and uh, that we are offering a meditation. I'm going to explain a few things about that meditation, what kind of meditation it is, and then we're going to do it. So tomorrow between 7 and 8, everybody is invited and welcome to also come here because it's an open whole school meditation. People from the first level can come if they finish their uh, evening lecture and it's an open meditation as a gift, as a spiritual gift which I make every year not only with the retreat itself which I also consider a gift but with the special meditation to mark that event in a spiritual way. So with this you have been let know about tomorrow. With this we have finished for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining and see you one way or another tomorrow or the next days.